Gyro Nation Metal. Welcome back to Gyro Nation Metal. My name is Jeff, and I'll be your host. Blackbird is a solo black metal outfit from the Adirondack Mountains in New York, USA. Skagasoa is the mastermind behind this project, releasing his first album on August 26th, just three days after the release of this episode. Skagasoa has already established a great image with professional photography, incredible album artwork, a tight sound, and an interesting approach to his music. His thematic imagery and lyrical style bring an indigenous mythology to the forefront of his music, while achieving that traditional black metal sound, which also includes the incorporation of traditional indigenous instruments. Skagasoa, thank you for joining me today. Hey, thank you. I'm happy to be here. I'm really happy that I get to release this episode just three days from the release of your album. Now that everything is said and done, how does it feel? It feels it feels pretty nuts. It's it's pretty surreal to be honest. Um, this album's been a long time in the making for me. I um, there was a lot, you know, as an an independent artist and not ever having produced my own record, um, there was a lot of kind of hiccups to get over with the production as far as like the cd and the vinyl and all that shit goes um so there was there was a bit of a learning curve for us and you know i'm really happy it's finally coming out but at the same time like i finished this album back in like march or april so it's like to me it's like super exciting because i've been i've been sitting on it for so long and i've wanted to share it with people for so long and uh, there was all this you know all this stuff kind of behind the scenes going on that I couldn't really release it until I had the, um, the physical release lined up. So, um, it's kind of been kind of like burning a hole in my pocket just to, I really want to share this with everyone. And it's, it seems like I've been waiting for so long to show this album to people and I can finally do it like in two weeks. So I'm really pumped. Yeah. You said you've been sitting on this since like, since like March. Uh, does that mean that you've been, waiting basically just on the physical media to have the release date yeah well it's more complicated than that um uh i'm sure you know about the vinyl situation kind of worldwide right now it's just a complete shit show yeah i've heard a few things it's gotten a little better but i'd say um most places in the u.s canada you know anywhere in this hemisphere really are probably about nine or ten months out right now it's getting a little better um, but it's really hard to get vinyl in a timely manner. Um, so I spent some time looking into that and um, seeing if I could get it a little faster. Because um, like CDs and tapes, you can usually you can turn around in less than a month, so it's not as big of an issue with that. Um, but then I also like I got some pretty major uh, offers from some big labels, and I was entertaining those for a while. I almost went with one or two of them. Um, but then I finally decided that I just really wanted to be independent. So like I was kind of in limbo for a month or two in the spring with, um, I won't say their name, but a big label that I almost, almost went with. Um, and that kind of slowed it down. Cause you know, I didn't want to start, start putting in, um, orders for my own release if they were going to release it. And, um, so like me debating with, if I wanted to do that kind of slowed it down. And then there was the searching for vinyl that slowed it down and, you know, it was ready, but I don't want to release it like nine months before the vinyl. Um, if it's a few months apart, like obviously I'm getting ready to release it at the end of this month and we're not going to see vinyl until the end of the year, but at least it's only a few months. Like I didn't really want to spread it out by more than half a year. 
So I knew the vinyl, um, the vinyl is definitely coming in November or December's, uh, when that'll be done. And I'll do a pre-order like a month in advance or something for it as well. Um, but I really kind of wanted to get this album out before the fall too, cause I have a show or two lined up and I wanted it to be available before that. Um, so I kind of tried to time it where, you know, I could put it out around now and it wouldn't be a huge stretch. You know, there's only another month or two before I'll do the vinyl pre-order. Um, but you know, there's still, there's still a little bit of waiting time, but yeah, it kind of, the vinyl was what really, really set back my release date. Um, and it's kind of been a blessing and a curse at the same time. Cause obviously people had to wait longer, but I've also been able to like work on the second album a lot more. It kind of seems like that the clock starts ticking for that. Like once you release the first one. So it feels like I got like a decent head start actually with how I played it. So I'm a little less stressed about the second one, but it's kind of like you want to, once you gain that momentum, you don't want to stop. You just want to keep rolling. Yeah. And I'm like, not, I don't write very consistently either. Like I go through big waves and um, my process changes and it's kind of uh it's a lot of stress for me or it would be, you know, once this album's out to be like, all right, people really like this. You know, I really want to put out a great second album for them. And it's like the clock's ticking. Like you don't really want people to, have to wait more than a year in between albums, you know? And it's like, do I really, but mm-hmm. and that seems like a long time to fans, but at the same time, it's like, do I really want to try to squeeze out right an entire full length in a year? So, <laughs> um, especially when I'm like, this album, six tracks and I purposely cut it a little short cause I felt the tracks all fit together, but like, I'm trying, I'm definitely going to, it's going to be longer on the second full length. That's always been my plan. So, delivering a longer album um in that amount of time is a little stressful so it feels really good that like i got a good head start on it right now and the first one's not even out yet so i'm pretty well, it's got to be a lot more taxing on you because you have to do everything from the vocals and and all the instruments plus put together the whole package like you don't have other bandmates currently just to bank ideas off of yeah yeah it is it's it's also kind of like a blessing and a curse. Like I, you know, I could easily just get bandmates. I have live members and stuff um, who are awesome, but I kind of decided really early on that I, could, you know, I've been in other a handful of other bands when I was younger. Nothing too crazy or anything, but like I've I've experienced it, you know, and. Um, you just know what's going to work and what's not going to work. And like with Blackbird, I had a very set vision of what I wanted it to be. Mm-hmm. And it was my vision. And I don't really want to have to share it with other people. Like if that makes sense. Um, I think it would just suffer because I would, I would be a dick to anyone. <laughs> I have like such, you know, there's pro- projects you can share and there's projects you can't. And it's like, I just have such a specific vision for Blackbird and what it means to me and what I want it to be like, I wouldn't be able to let someone else write it. It would, it would be a shit show, you know? Okay. So I'd rather just, it's, it's a, it's a lot of work, but I'd, I'd definitely rather suffer through it by myself. How do you go about finding the bandmates for your live shows? Um, I mean, I haven't actually played live yet, so it's all okay. up in the air, but the guys I got now, um, 
I reached out to a good friend of mine um, who works with a lot of indigenous metal bands um, and has a little label. And I knew he would, I knew he would have great connections. And, you know, within 24 hours, I was like, dude, I got some shows I want to play. <laughs> Can we get something together? And mm-hmm. he, you know, it wasn't, it, I, I didn't really have to do anything. It was, it was, it was pretty easy for me to find them. Um, and I'm really happy with the guys I got. So yeah, fair enough. What's that label called? Um, it's called, uh, I think I've, I'm not really supposed to talk about it cause it's still, a okay. se- it's still no, a secret fair. who my live members are, but I, I'm going to tell you, right. I'm going to tell you right now they can, it's, you got to talk about it at some point too. And there's been a lot of speculation. I think people already kind of know. So, um, well, this one's coming out on the 23rd of August. So if you don't want to say anything before that time, that's cool. And if, if you want nah, to we, we can say it. We've been dancing around it for weeks, and I think people pretty much know. But um, the label is Night of the Pale Moon, Okay. based out of L.A. Cool. And they do some work with some amazing indigenous metal artists and just a ton of a ton of underground black metal in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not all indigenous. It's everything. But um, they're awesome, tiny smaller black metal label and uh you, you know i i knew i knew him before um before i started black braid and i also kind of wanted to i really did want to kind of have like a west coast base because there's such a better scene for metal out there right now and it was kind of a no-brainer to ask him and it it kind of just worked out perfectly for me so it's great to have those connections before you jump into anything yeah, yeah, I won't, I won't give out any names, but uh, Night of the Pale Moon has definitely had their hands and in, in helping me with my live lineup. Are they solely black metal? Yeah, pretty much. Okay, I don't. They might do some avant-garde stuff here and there, but like ninety percent of the crap they put out is definitely black metal. Nice. I think I'll have to check them out. For yeah, sure. they're doing. Um, they booked the show that we have in new york city in october mm-hmm. with like lamp of murmur and pan american native front um and some other ones so uh yeah they're pretty sweet it's it's very heavily um black metal oriented label now that you have uh some live members lined up and stuff are you planning to go on a tour for the release of the album we are i, I wouldn't really say it's for the release of the album though Mm. Um, because the album's coming out soon and I don't really want to go right now. Um, fair enough, but, uh, it, it might be a little more in line with the vinyl release, but we haven't really addressed that yet. Um, it's really, it's really up in the air right now. We'll definitely be doing some, a lot of shows next year in 2023. I'm on the, right now I'm kind of on the fence when I want to start really pushing them out. Um, right now we have two shows scheduled this year and I probably won't play more this year. Um, but I, I really do want to play a lot next year. Um, and yeah, I'm kind of torn if we want to do a couple winter dates, but like touring in the winter is also really awful, mm-hmm. especially around here with the weather and stuff. Um, so I'm kind of torn. We might look at a few, but I might wait till the spring and just go a little harder and like 
play more in the spring and kind of take the winter off to finish that second album. So I don't know, but definitely next spring and summer, you can expect to see our dates ramping up a lot. I'll definitely be looking forward to that. Are you planning on doing like uh, just some shows in the States or are you planning on coming to Canada as well? I'd definitely like to make it to Canada. Yeah. Oh, that'd be sick. Yeah. Before we started recording, you touched on, um, actually during the recording, you touched on how uh, challenging this whole thing has been. Um, So for you, putting everything together, what has been the most difficult thing for you to learn? And then also what is the most rewarding that you've learned so far? Um, That's a pretty hard question. I don't know. I think uh, (laughs) it's, um, I don't really do like my wife does most of the business end of things for me. She runs the web store and she did my website and um, she, she runs a pre-order. She, she does pretty much everything to be honest, besides write the music. Um, so I, I mean, I didn't even learn that stuff. Like she, she knows it, but that would definitely be my weak point. I'd say like, I'm pretty, I feel like I'm good at writing music, but I'm definitely not a business oriented person at all. And, um, she's really kind of taking the reins on that Mm -hmm. and helped me with, helped me kind of turn black raid into something viable. Whereas I don't, you know. I don't really know what to do on that front a lot of the time since she's been a major help, um, especially with this pre-order. Um, I really, I'd say that's probably my weakness is like, I definitely struggle with all the, the business aspect of things and design and all that crap. Um, but as far as being most rewarding, I don't know. Uh, it's really all been crazy rewarding. Like I really, I didn't expect anyone to listen to this, you know, like how many fucking, how many fucking atmospheric black metal albums get put out every month and just swept under the rug. Like it's such an oversaturated genre and I didn't, I really didn't expect anyone to listen to it. Like there's hundreds of us writing black metal now and we're all putting out EPs constantly on our own. And like, there's so much to choose from. I really, did black braid for myself just to say i put out an album at one point you know mm-hmm. and i didn't really expect it to go anywhere i didn't think we were gonna do a physical release i didn't think we were gonna press vinyl you know not a couple not over a thousand at least like a maybe a hundred or two if i was really lucky but um yeah the whole thing has just been surreal because i definitely had zero expectations going in and mm-hmm. i almost had negative expectations like i was pretty sure it wasn't going to catch on just because of the amount of black metal that's out there right now. And so much of it is amazing. It's, it's a pretty hard scene to compete in. It's very easy to get drowned out by the rest of the noise at any given time. So, um, that's just it. And, and it's like, like you said, constant releases. So it's like every week you see, I don't know, 50 to 60 yeah. different releases at least. And they're not even bad, you know, like, I only get a chance to listen to maybe a third of them and almost all of them are great. And it's like, you can't keep up at this point. So, and it's so hard to listen to things like you used to, like you can't just plug into a record and listen to that constantly anymore. Cause then you're missing out on so many other good musicians and you're like, where do I devote my time? Yeah, exactly. Like if you get obsessed with a record for a week, you missed out on everything that came out that week. Like <laughs> there's so much shit coming out now. But I mean, that means you're obviously doing something 
right if you have that much support right off the bat and maybe it is part of like you doing this for yourself and and making something that you'd enjoy rather than pandering to a specific sound it seems like you legitimately care about what your music is like yeah definitely it's it's really important to me um and that's always that'll always be the main focus of black braid like no matter how you want to interpret it or what i'm writing about like Mm -hmm. um you know, I've been there where you're putting out a single because you want it to sell or you add some fucking bass drop or a, a catchy chorus or something, you know, like... Um, or trying to co- copy the sound of another band. Yeah, or or just you're trying to do what you think will work, you know, like what you think people will want. And that's not not really on my radar at all of black raid i just do what i want mm-hmm. and i think it translates pretty well because i love black metal so much you know and it just so happens that what i want in black metal seems to be in line with what a lot of other people think it's missing too so maybe that has mm-hmm. something to do with it what made you decide to go the black metal route i just love it i mean i don't know i don't <laughs> I don't really see myself writing anything else. I mean, I uh, I listen to pretty much every genre of music you could imagine, but it's um, just black metal is so raw and so emotional, and it's I'm not the kind of guy who would put out a a a blues record or something, or you know, like I listen to everything, but mm-hmm. when I sit down to play guitar, it's always been metal. And, you know, I just love metal. I I grew up playing when I was like eight or ten and shit, you know, I'd start playing shit like Metallica and Lamb of God and Megadeth and the more mainstream shit. And then I like did the natural progression into more extreme metal. But I mean, metal is really, it's, it's it for me, you know, it's not like a genre that you kind of casually get into, like, mm-hmm. No one really only, you know, metalheads really love metal. So, and I've been listening to black metal for a long, a long ass time. And I, I just want more of it, I guess. Like I want, there's more, there's things I feel like black metal still needs and it, it it's an easy thing to write for me, I guess. Who were some of the first bands that got you kind of into extreme metal? Like you mentioned uh, Lamb of God, Megadeth, and Metallica. But when you started moving into the more extreme side of things, like black metal or whatever, who were some of those first bands? Yeah, so I was um, obviously, I grew up around here too, um, born and raised in the U.S. So I did grow up on a lot of U.S. metal, like Metallica and uh, Priest and stuff. Um, I think the first band... I really heard that kind of bridged my way into extreme metal. Maybe not the first, but like the first one I really became obsessed with was was Opeth. Okay. Um, I I saw Opeth when I was maybe thirteen or fourteen. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were touring off. Uh, maybe I was older. I don't know. That they were. They had just released Deliverance and Damnation, and they were doing a a tour off of them. Nice. Um, and like I mentioned, like back then I was kind of into the more mainstream US metal and that's what I, all I had been exposed to. And I actually went to that show cause devil driver was a support on it and I love devil driver. 
And uh, back then, I was like, yeah, let's go see fucking Devil Driver. I was so pumped. And, and I mean, Devil Driver's sweet, too. I'm not going to... I've never said anything bad about Devil Driver. I love him. But um, I didn't even know who Opeth was. And, like, I went to that show to see Devil Driver, and then Opeth came on, and I was just fucking floored. Like, I had never heard metal like that, you know? And they played for two hours, and there was, like, acoustic and jazz mixed into it, and then they were just fucking ripping. And, like, that was really it. Once I saw Opeth... I started looking for more extreme metal, like, and they're still, I'd say, one of my top five metal bands of all time. A lot of people don't like what they did in the last decade, but they're just so important and, and pivotal to me. Um, I'll, I'll always love Opeth. And, uh, you know, after that, I'd say um, Gorgoroth was one of, like, the first real fucking black metal bands I heard. Um, I remember hearing like early Gorgoroth in like late nineties. I think Pest was the vocal the first vocalist they had, and he was the first one that I heard when they did I wanna say the album was called Antichrist, or maybe it was just called Gorgoroth. But it had like Crushing the Scepter and stuff on it. I, I had a demo around that time that had Crushing the Scepter on it. And when I heard his vocal, Pest's vocals on that, I was like, holy fuck. Like, that was a song that really did it for me. And I was like, I think I, I think I should only listen to black metal now. Like, I became <laughs> pretty obsessed after that. Um, I love, uh, I love Dissection a lot. Um, as far as the classic stuff goes, Dissection's a huge influence on me. Um, but yeah, I'd say there wasn't too many. Like those were like the first ones I really discovered, and then it was kind of like a floodgate. Like everything else hit me at the same time after that. You mm -hmm. know, you touched on Opus, uh, uh, sorry, Opeth's newer stuff. Um, what do you think about the last couple albums? Um, I don't think they're bad. It's just uh, it's very different. You know, it's um, it's a touchy subject because I love Opeth and. I mean, it goes without saying, I definitely love their old records more, but I don't dislike them at all for putting out stuff like that. Like, it's really, uh, I think it's a really selfish thing to, uh, to dislike a band for doing something like that, you know, because, I mean, look at Michael. I mean, I don't know his birthday or anything, but he started writing those songs when he was like 18 or 20. Like, Opeth has been a band for 35 years or some shit, you know? Like, you can't yeah. expect, I just know the songs I was writing at 18 are not the kind of shit I'd want to be writing now. And he's gone even further than that. Like, you know, the shit I'm writing when I'm fucking 40 or 50 is not going to be the same shit I'm writing now either. And it's like, you can't expect an artist to not change. Um, and he's just putting out genuine music that he loves. And that's all you can really expect from someone. It doesn't matter if you like it or not, you know, mm -hmm. or if it sounds like the last genuine album he put out. I mean, he still seems to be pretty invested in his music and taking it seriously, even if it's a completely different genre. Like he's a musician and he's doing it on his terms. So there's really, you know, I, I have nothing but respect for it still. Yeah, exactly. It's not my thing. Um, I like the, the heavier, more in your face kind of stuff. One of my favorite albums was Watershed, but um, I have to appreciate what they've done since. And it's just like, like you said, it's a totally different genre. It's not necessarily something I'll listen to, but it's not that I don't like it. It's just, I don't seek it out, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
My favorite album from them would probably be Damn uh uh Morningside. Mm. Um I actually bought that on that show <laughs> that I first saw them when they're in Damnation Deliverance and like I think they had sold out of the Deliverance CD that day because it was their tour. It was like they were touring in support of it. Yeah. And so I ended up buying Morningside and I didn't I didn't, I didn't even know who they were. I just wanted to buy something because they fucking played so well, you know. Um like I didn't even know it was the old album I was buying. I was just like, "Oh, I'll take that one." <laughs> um and then I remember, yeah, I think I was probably about 14 or some shit when that happened and I had this little boombox. Um this was like when when CDs were just becoming a thing and MP3 was not on the radar at all at this point. Um but yeah, I had this thing, this little boombox in my room and I remember playing that copy of Morning Rise like for like a year and a half straight until it was just too scratched up fucking play anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I got lucky with a like a box set of Opeth. The first ones I ever purchased, it was um I think it was Damnation Deliverance, uh Blackwater Park and I think it was Morning Rise as well. But yeah, I, I listened to those quite a bit and that was like my, my first introduction into Opeth. Yeah, I mean those early albums like Damnation, Deliverance, and everything before that. You know, even some of the ones after, like Ghost Reveries and shit. Like, I I wouldn't really, like, you don't hear Opeth in my music. No one would be like, wow, this guy was influenced by Opeth listening to me. But they're, yeah, a, a massive influence on me, I'd say. They, they definitely formed a lot of my opinions on metal when I was young. And, and they still do today, so. That's awesome to hear. What inspired you to bring indigenous mythology to music? Um, I think it really plays into what I said earlier about wanting to be right genuine music and not just make shit up, you know? Like, I wanted to just... It's something that's really important to me and it means a lot to me in my personal life and my emotions are incredibly invested in it already. And... I just wanted to write about something that I felt was meaningful and there's not many meaningful things in my life to me. Like I really love nature in the sacred, in the relationship we have with it. And that's something that is touched on in black metal a lot, but I feel like no one really, really like hits the nail on the head the way I want them to. So Figured I'd try my hand at it myself, I guess. Well, I mean, your love for nature is clear with, uh, like I was, like we were chatting about before the show here, um, like your photography on your Instagram is, is incredible. And you said you've been learning that for a while? Yeah, I mean, I've pretty much, um, I'm a very nature-oriented guy. I, uh, I grew up in the wilderness. Well, not really in the wilderness. Like, I grew up in a farm town, but. Um, we were going to the mountains, these same mountains I live in now, I live in the wilderness, and we camp, and we fish, and hike, you know, all the fucking time, every weekend in the summer, and um, I've been doing taxidermy, and I tan pelts, and I, I track whitetail, and I've, uh, I've been doing all this crap for most of my life, so um, cool. it's, I'm That's very awesome. ingrained in nature, and it's always been a huge part of my life, and it wasn't really until very recently... Um, the last few years where I realized, like, that's not common. <laughs> I'm kind of yeah. just in my own bubble, and, like, I don't really 
the rest of the world doesn't register to me a lot of the time, but like at one point when I was writing these songs, it really clicked to me that um, maybe I take that for granted a little bit, that relationship, because I know it's really special and I know I have something very unique. Um, but you forget how rare it is, kind of, and how many people don't have that. Uh, and that's kind of my goal with Blackbird, too, is to bring, kind of help people make that connection and be the bridge that gets them there because it's not really it's not that simple for, for a lot of people um it's really easy to to get caught up in in material things and for, forget to look at at to take the time to look into nature and figure out what's important to you you know it's interesting to hear somebody who spends all of his time in nature to say that he takes it for granted yeah no i think i really do and that's part of what Blackbird is, is kind of like me finally seeing that and wanting to give back. Like, uh, there's, there's like a string of events that kind of made me view things differently, but like, it just hit me one day. I can't remember what we were talking about, like birds or we we're talking about like subspecies of maple or something, me and my wife. And like, she was like, you should write a book about nature or something. And it just hit me how much how much shit I know that no one knows that I take for granted. Um, and it's not, you know, it's definitely like a privilege. Like a lot of people don't know anything about nature just because they've never really had the opportunity to be in it. You know, it's not, it's not, it's not a fault of their own. Um, so that's kind of what Blackbird is. Like, I kind of want to, if I have that connection, and it's that really that special. I think maybe I sh I should do something to share it with people who are less fortunate. You talked about knowing a lot of stuff about nature and and how a lot of people don't. And I think part of that, um, like it, it's knowledge gained over time. But I think also it's it's that you've been kind of invested in learning that stuff. A lot of the time when I see people out in nature, and this is just I, I'm sure it's a, the same across a lot of the world. But I notice a lot of people just spending all their time trying to take the perfect picture for social media or they, they, they're trying to, I don't know, build their followers rather than learn anything or do anything productive in nature. Yeah, absolutely. And something, you know, related to that, that has been a big thing for me, that's been really hard for me in this last year or two. Like I told you, I did nature photography and mm -hmm. wildlife. And in the last two years, I've really been trying to not, um, like I go to so many beautiful, completely remote places just out in the middle of, the mountains in the middle of nowhere, you know, and I always used to want to bring my camera. And then I was always so focused on taking pictures when I got there. And it's been such a major step for me to be like some days to schedule time to go to those places and be like, I gotta not take the camera today. And like, I gotta spend some time there by myself without the fucking camera or without my phone, you know, and like, leave it, leave it at home. Um, has been, a big struggle for me because obviously I get there and it's breathtaking and you want to document it with a beautiful photo, but you kind of, when you're focused on things like that, you kind of miss out sometimes too. So you'd say that when you leave your camera, or your phone at home, you're far more immersed in the, in the nature that surrounds you. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a good feeling. Um, 
I just recently did that with the Loudest Hell Festival. I just left my phone in the uh, trailer pretty much the entire time. I took no pictures, but holy fuck, I had a good time. Yeah, it's so fucking... You kind of got to force yourself into it sometimes. Like, it's so hard yeah. to leave, your, leave it behind, but, like... Once you're once you finally do it and you're like an hour or two into it, into it, you feel amazing, <laughs> you know. Well, it's like living. It's living in the moment, literally. That, that that that's your experience. It's not experiencing it through a camera screen or a phone screen. Like I found that, you know, back in the day, I used to photograph everything. I used to videos at concerts, and I never watched the videos. And and a lot of the time, I didn't really get the full, I guess, atmosphere. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I feel the same way, and it's. It is that, you know, it is a struggle because you kind of want to, you want to share it if you're going to do something like that. But I think with most of us, we've reached this point where technology is like so accessible. We don't, we don't really realize how much it, we are letting it control our, our livelihood. You know, you kind of got to force yourself to step back from it sometimes because, you know, no one else is going to tell you to step back. Well, I mean, when you start to feel naked, when you forget your cell phone at home, there's something wrong. Yeah, and I mean, even me, you know, this fucking dude who's been living his whole life trying to be one with nature, like, I still experience that shit, too, you know? It's like, yep, I don't want to put my phone down sometimes, and it sucks. <laughs> but <laughs> it's, it's a good breakaway, though, that's for sure. Yeah. One of your songs is called The Barefoot Ghost Dance and Blood Soaked Soil. Can you tell me more about what the ghost dance is? Yeah, ghost dance was a movement... Um, in the late 1800s in the u.s i think it even went into canada if i'm not mistaken okay um the ghost dance was like late 1800s like 1890s or so it really became relevant and it was kind of um man <laughs> i don't even know where to start here it's it's such a heavy subject and it's so deep um that was like the end of the indian wars and you know, genocide was was full fledged at that point in time, and things were pretty fucking rough for Indigenous Americans mm -hmm. everywhere. Um, there's a lot of rape and murder and other things going on, mm -hmm. and um, it's it's so hard to even. I don't know where to start talking about ghost dance. Um, there was a prophet from the west coast called wavoka um okay. and i guess yeah I, it's really hard not to ramble about this shit because i know i'm i'm kind of a history buff too and i know so much indigenous history but like the short version of it would be um he created the ghost dance as kind of like a spiritual revival to unite all the tribes on the entire continent um, and it pretty much worked like it did. And, um, it kind of led to a lot of our demise as well, because it, it really swept the nation fast ghost dance and it transferred from tribe to tribe. Um, and you know, this was before the internet or phones or anything. So like, with the with the rate that it traveled at was astronomical and like a lot of tribes were ghost dancing all over the midwest and you know southwest and um it was really like an indian revival and a reclaiming of our spirit 
and it was kind of like the last straw too because it we really gained so much momentum and so much faith and power from that like it ironically kind of caused the government to bring the hammer down on us and like it led to wounded knee and a lot of other thing a couple other massacres and the reservation system and it was kind of the last straw, you know, where they're like, we really got to do something about these Indians or they're going to fucking take our country back from us. <laughs> and, uh, um, in the ghost dance really put a lot of fear in the eyes of the white man. Um, and was an insanely strong weapon back then. And it's, again, it's really hard to talk to, you know, we could talk for two or three hours just about ghost dance. It's really hard to, sum it up but um it's a, it, it was a revival of of spirituality for all the indigenous tribes in this country pretty much that it touched and you said also it was like a it it was kind of like something that brought unity to all the tribes you said right yeah that's cool um so and, yeah so what i hear from this is that because um all the tribes across North America were kind of uniting and, and cooperating. They came back down with like um, far more drastic measures, I guess. And they, they couldn't have any of that cooperation between them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, hmm. It was kind of like the, the last stand um, for indigenous culture for a long time. Like that was when it became illegal for us to practice our own religion too. Or to sing or dance and or sing in our own language or dance and stuff it was all because of ghost dance, uh, because people were so scared of it. So with the ghost dance, um, were the residential schools like put in place after that? During it, really, and it During was kind it. of a threat. This was all happening at the same time. Like kids were getting shipped off and taken from their homes to these the first waves of these schools at the same time ghost dance was happening, and you know. Some parents were forcing their kids to learn the old language and forcing them to go dance and not letting them be carted off. And it, you know, it posed a major, it really was a cultural revival mm -hmm. across the entire continent for us. And like, I think they, the white man really thought they had us in their pocket and ghost dance, you know, was like the fucking ace up our sleeve pretty much. Well, it's divide and conquer, right? It's it's when those divisions occur that it's easy to control people. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I mean, it was definitely happening at the same exact time those residential schools were being formed. And hmm. it was kind of giving people the strength to resist, the, you know, being carted into those reservations and being forced into those schools. Um a lot of people were ready to give up and just throw in the towel back then. And the ghost dance kind of gave them a second wind of spirit and really kind of ignited a second revolution. And I think it, that's why it was so scary to so many people. That must've been incredibly hard too, especially considering they were looking at like industrialized, like industrialized uh, essentially invaders at that point and coming in with like technologically advanced weaponry and other stuff. So it's, to, to stand up against that when, when you are living in a more traditional way has got to be insane. Yeah, it's a huge, 
you know, there's conflict at every turn. There's no right answer. It's, mm-hmm. you know, we were torn back then too. All the Indians are torn. Like some of us fought with muskets and muzzle loaders and shit. And some of us used like traditional weapons and some of us didn't want to fight at all. You know, it's, you've never really been invaded or colonized. It's such a foreign concept to own land it's like you don't really know how to combat it and there wasn't much organization against it because no one there's not really a humane way to fight back against something that's so inhumane you know and it's 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 definitely a dilemma holy fuck i gotta read more up on that that's quite interesting especially because uh things like residential schools and and um and the reservations are things, well, residential schools no longer exist, but the reservations are still quite, like, common in Canada. And I, I would assume the same for the States. Yeah. Have you heard, you know, about Wounded Knee? I know of, I know of Wounded Knee, but I don't know anything about it. That was a direct um, cause and effect of Ghost Dancer. That's the biggest massacre that's ever happened on U.S. soil. They okay. killed, like... They murdered like 300 women and children. The U.S. Army did. The first cavalry. Jesus. Um, and buried them in a mass grave at Wounded Knee, South Dakota. Um, and that was an 18... Man, I'm dating myself. I don't know if I have this right, because I, I used to be way more in history than I am. I want to say that was in 1892. Um, but December 21st, I think, 1892. It was definitely at the end of December. My dates are a little rusty. Um, but that was because of Ghost Dance. Um, like, people were ghost dancing. The Lakota were, you know. Um, it was Lakota and Cheyenne. It was a mix um, at that camp that day. But uh, it, it terrified them. And that's what led to the massacre. Holy fuck. With the uh, image on your single for Ghost Dance, is that um, is that a picture from that time period? It is. That that photo was taken in 1904. Cool. Um, and in northern in northern Cheyenne, mm-hmm. powwow. Yeah. That's fucking crazy. I love it. Yeah, yeah. It's an it's an old ass photo. <laughs> So with your um, with your stage makeup and and the stuff that I've seen obviously in the in the pictures here, are you kind of trying to bring in that traditional um, indigenous kind of look? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it was kind of a no brainer. With mm-hmm. I didn't even think twice about that. That was one thing I didn't have to debate about at all because, I mean, so many black metal bands corpse paint, mm-hmm. and it's pretty much stolen from us. <laughs> I don't want to be <laughs> like that, but I mean, if you look at corpse paint in Native American war paint. There's literally no difference in a lot of the scenarios. Um, so it's so easy to just, you know, I don't even see it as corpse paint. It's like my people have been painting their faces for war for a thousand years. So yeah, exactly. In the same exact style. So like when I put it on, it's, I love black metal and I love corpse paint, but like it's more an ode to them than it is to, to black metal, you know? So do, um, do ghost dance traditions still exist then? I wouldn't say so, no. No? Okay, fair enough. 
Um, if you don't mind me asking, which tribe do you belong to? I'm not registered, actually. Um, okay. Big a, a big thing in the U.S. A lot of people don't realize is, um, like with the reservation system and the residential schools and stuff. Um, mm-hmm. So many of us were taken from our families and lost our identity. And there's a lot of broken ass indigenous families across this country, more than you'd think. Um, but I guess I could be, I would fall into that category because, yeah, I was I was adopted at birth and I was never enrolled in a tribe. Oh, okay. Do you know um, like what your family history is? I do, but uh, to a tiny bit, but not enough to really. I can't say, like you know, I wouldn't say I'm from this tribe or anything because. I've never even lived on the same coast. <laughs> um, what other tribes are in the area of the Adirondack Mountains? Um, here's a, a mix, actually. There's actually a mix where I am. It's uh, well, the Adirondacks is a pretty unique place. Um, there was there was like skirmishes here and stuff during colonization, but. It didn't really, it barely even got colonized here, I would say, because it's such a harsh alpine wilderness. Um, not many, even today, like hardly anyone lives here. It's a very remote place. Um, and back then, before roads or electricity or anything, like, um, you know, there was there was uh, people trying to colonize the area a little bit, like white settlers there's a lot of dutch up here mm-hmm. um and germans and stuff like but um there was no there wasn't much conflict like there wasn't wars like there was in the west like up here like everyone was just trying not to freeze to death pretty much yeah fair enough and um or you know just not to starve over the winter and there wasn't even like there was a couple skirmishes with the army and the cavalry and stuff but there wasn't really enough um people just didn't have the time or the energy to fight it's such a harsh wilderness and they were kind of just uh focused on surviving um but yeah to answer that question i guess where i am the adirondacks are kind of divided like between algonquin and mohawk territory and it's not really even either of their territories like it's always because of what I just said, like the wilderness is just so unforgiving here and it's so mountainous and harsh. And, um, even before, um, the white people came here, um, it was, it's kind of a mix of the two of them. Like the Mohawk and the Haudenosaunee are really relevant, uh, just to the South of here, like down towards Albany and the middle of the state kind of, um, and they came all the way up here, like their territory comes up to the Adirondacks, but um so like they were to the south of the Adirondacks and to the north is pretty much Quebec and the Algonquin were up there. There's also Mohawk up there, but back then there was a lot of Algonquin. Um so they the Adirondacks is just this huge uh wilderness sitting in between them. And it traditionally it was kind of used as shared hunting ground between the Mohawks and the Algonquin. And the Mohawks would come up from the south and the Algonquin would come down from the north. Um, and you would see hunting camps here and small civilizations and stuff. But you wouldn't see like, you don't really see longhouses or anything like that here. 
um, for the same reason I just said, like, the wi the winters were so damn harsh here, like, no one really wanted to live here full-time or start a settlement, and the people that did were hermits, pretty much, um, so you would, people would, you know, the Mohawk and the Algonquin would come in here for, like, four to six months at a time and set up a camp, and they would trap and hunt and bring a bunch of shit home to trade and to feed their families and stuff. But like they wouldn't actually like, there was no year round civilization here. It was a lot of trapping and a lot of scouting and camping. Um, and, uh, you know, as, as it started getting colonized, there was more skirmishes and people butt heads and stuff. And, but I mean, even before that happened, the Mohawk and the Algonquin would skirmish a little bit up here. Um, but it's generally like, it's always kind of been just a really harsh environment and people are more, are kind of too concerned with surviving to just have time to disagree with each other. It seems like. So more or less just because of the harsh conditions, they were more likely to coexist even if they were kind of warring tribes or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it was, um, it's such like a. It's it's really unforgiving. Intense environment. Um, the forests are like crazy thick. We have some of the thickest forests in the world, and it's it's like a really. You really feel like you're in the wilderness when you're in the Adirondacks. It's a pretty raw, climate. Um, and yeah, you can kind of see where like, there's you know, there's so much wildlife here and you'd be more worried about getting mauled by a bear any given day than you would be about getting ambushed by, by some Mohawk or yeah. something, you know? Yeah. There's um, definitely some things I'd rather worry about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. People, um, it's, it, it's really cool. Cause, um, yeah, they, there wasn't much conflict here. There was, and there wasn't, but, um, as a result, there's also not much history. Like people didn't really have time to write shit down. Most of all Adirondack history is completely unknown. And what we know is, pretty much like word of mouth um people weren't documenting shit here before 100 years ago it just didn't happen um they didn't have time and they didn't have the thought to you know it's so cool how like languages cultures and traditions have been passed down for centuries without the written word and this is like a relatively new thing yeah yeah definitely are the um the algonquin and the mohican languages uh similar I don't know much about Algonquin. Um, okay. I think they are, though. If I'm correct, they could mostly understand. They were kind of interchange, Not the same language, but, like, mm -hmm. you were probably bilingual. Like, you could probably understand Mohawk. You could probably understand Mohawk if, if you were raised Algonquin and vice versa. Like in a way, kind of like uh, French and Spanish, they have some similarities, but they're not the same language. Yeah. Okay. And you'd just Fair probably enough. be interacting with them from a young age, you know, like trading or whatever. Like you would interact with them enough to kind of get um a feel for their tribe. And then something else was big all over the continent, you know, Canada, U.S., Mexico, all of it. Um, hand signals were a big thing in signing. Um a lot of regions like between tri there would be signs that were hand signs that were understood 
between tribes um, when when language barriers wouldn't work. Um, there's a pretty it's mostly lost now, but there was a pretty extensive, uh, you know, like visible sign language that was also used. That's really cool. And that's a good way to communicate, like, instead of, like, say, going up to another tribe's camp and then possibly being killed or whatever, you can use those hand signs to know if they're friendly or not. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think a lot of that is completely lost knowledge. There might be people out there that know a good amount of it, but if there is, I don't know much of it. But, um, yeah, pre-colonization signing was also a big form of communication almost from what I from what I've been led to believe it was just as relevant as spoken word. Hmm. That's really cool. Yeah. What is your traditional uh, language called? I mean, with me being um adopted and unenrolled, I was mm -hmm. never taught traditional language. Oh, okay. I wonder if some of that stuff is taught in schools, probably, basically, probably not outside reservations. No, it's it's not taught outside reservations ever. You'd be lucky on a lot, on half the time on reservations they don't even teach it. Yeah. With the reservations on in the states, uh, do you know how they're run? Like, um, I guess what I'm comparing it to, or what I'm assuming, it's similar. Like they're they're run by um, run by the tribe, but like the government provides money, and then it's disseminated through the. Um, through everybody that way. Now, the one thing I've noticed, at least uh, right next to Calgary on the uh, Sutina Nation, they were, uh, I have a couple of friends there and they were telling me how like property works, like they don't actually own their property, but they can build a house anywhere they want. However, everything belongs to the tribe. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's generally the same here. Um, okay. You do need like a permit to build, like you got to get a plot, mm. but it's not, the same type of land ownership that it would be outside the reservation. And would that be granted by, and forgive me if I'm saying this wrong, but that would, would that be granted like by the council or is that something that's kind of, or, or voted on? Um, it's probably granted by the council. I think it, it mm. depends. I think it really depends what reservation you're on, but. And you said earlier that you weren't enrolled. So th does that mean that people like I know a lot of indigenous people here, they have to have like a, a native status card that says like what band they belong to and kind of what reservation they belong to and all that kind of stuff uh, in order to be granted certain like tax exemptions or whatever. Is that similar down in the States? It is. Yeah. And I don't have one of those. Um, and uh, that's kind of the, you know, that's kind of an underlying reason why it, I don't um, mm. is because they they offer these so-called benefits to you, but they don't really want people to be able to utilize them. So like, even as someone, as someone like me, who's obviously like <laughs> extremely indigenous, like more than 50% of my blood, um, they want ways to kind of, you know, they don't want to give out freebies to anyone, especially brown people. So they'll do anything to kind of like, I could never get any of those benefits because I was adopted and uh, there's a lot of other loopholes that prevent people in other situations from getting them too. Um, well, something I found fucked up here was um, I used to work at a furniture store and, and one of the things that we'd have is like, we would grant the tax ex exemption upon like showing us the indigenous card, but you would have to have it delivered to the reservation. Like you couldn't live off the reservation if you wanted that break. And I'm like, that's fucking dumb. 
that doesn't make any sense. If you're allowed at one place, why can't you be allowed at the other place? You're having it delivered in the same city. Yeah, they really like do everything they can to make sure as as little people as possible actually get help from any of those any of those stipulations. Hmm. Well, I mean, that can go into a whole nother conversation about some of the issues on reservations. Like here in Canada, it's it's rife with like domestic abuse and, and drug addiction. And so that's like, those are things that I think they have to solve before even. Yeah. You know, I yeah. Think those are pretty important things rather than like our prime minister just saying sorry all the time and creating a holiday that he just fucks off for. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a, yeah, it's a really, it's one of the worst, you know, the worst crimes of our time and no one really wants to take responsibility for something like that, you know? No, I mean, the best way to take responsibility is to try and actually start fixing it rather than just like virtue signaling. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, enough about politics because I can go into that for a while, but um, I'm interested in uh, Skagasawa. So what does that mean? Uh, that's a Mohawk word and it, it means the witch hawk. Oh, cool. And it's, yeah, that's kind of like the um, the pseudonym I use for Black Braid. We've obviously talked about like um, like your your love for Indigenous history and then your incorporation of traditional instruments, imagery, and all that kind of stuff. So, for you, why is it so important to convey this through your music? Um, I guess, like I said, like I just kind of want to share it at this point. Um feels like something that I shouldn't keep inside you know it's not I don't really have a solid answer for it it just I it seems like a something that I should do like I should write you know you look at um you can kind of look at music and there's a clear line between bands that are emotionally invested in their music and then bands that are made for capital. And it's like, I never really wanted to be the band that was made to be profitable, you know? And it was kind of just a waiting game. Like I didn't write any music cause I didn't want to. And then one day I really started wanting to share the black braid message. So I decided to make it a band. It wasn't much of a, a thought for me it just seemed like something i should i should probably share and for like your debut album what um what are some of the more important stories or or mythological focuses that you're taking um that's a good question i mean obviously i touch on ghost dance and stuff but um it's so much of indigenous cultures based in storytelling and um so much of it is not only passing down stories, but creating your own. And I think that's something that a lot of people don't realize about Black Braid is a lot, a lot of it's not really based in folklore. It's based in personal experience. Um, I mostly just write about things I've lived through and experienced myself. And they might sound profound or spiritual to some people but it's not really a story that was passed down to me you know it's i just want to write about things 
that I've lived through. And so kind of in a way, it's instead of saying, this is what I went through and this is what I feel, you're, you're incorporating whether it be story or like yeah. um, comparison almost. Yeah, I'm more interested in writing my own stories than passing others down, I think. But a bit of both happens by default. And I love your album artwork. It's fucking cool. And you worked with Adrian Baxter. Am I right on that? Yeah, he's amazing. I mean, it was kind of crazy of me to go with him because he's a little more high profile. Um, and he's done some really big art in the past few years. He did Shamash and Paradise Lost and Cloak and some other big ones, um, which is how I found him. But I just really loved his art and like, I I honestly I couldn't afford him when <laughs> when I I hired him to do that art before any of this shit took off you know and like I had nothing um I, Ghost Dance was the only song out and it was only been out for like a week I didn't think anything was gonna happen um and I hired him because I wanted to release River and I I had the standalone cover for Ghost Dance but I wanted River to be like the uh, the second single for the album and I wanted it to have the album art on it um. So, like, I hired him really early on in the process, and uh, he just did amazing, and it something just told me, like, I should just bite the bullet and get this guy, because I love the art, and even if I'm not, you know, I this the project wasn't anything then. It kind of seems silly to get such a great artist for something so obscure, but... <laughs> I was like, I, I personally felt a really strong connection to the album, and it was like, you know what? I don't care if it fucking flops. Like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pay this guy what he's worth to do this art, and if fucking three people buy the album. I don't care. Like, I don't want to put it out with bad art, you know? <laughs> no, for sure, yeah. it looks awesome, and I think you, I think you did a very uh, good job of choosing an artist. Um, what did you pitch to him for the idea? Like, there's a lot of stuff going on. Yeah, I kind of just gave him... It was like a really abstract idea because he has such um, a unique style and he's so cool. And like, you know, I've done art myself. Um, aside from music, like I'm painted and drawn and shit. And it's like, you don't really... Um, an artist like that who's like obviously a master of their craft and I respect him a lot. Like, I don't want to really give him you don't want to really put boundaries on their creativity. So with him, I really just gave him, I sent him the entire album. Um, and I told him, I gave him like a brief rundown of what every song meant to me. And I had like a really loose idea of what I wanted to incorporate into the album. Art, and I was like, you can kind of just like take this and run with it how you want. And oh, I really, really cool. just want it to embody the album and the songs and, you know, the concepts that I just described to you. But like, I wasn't like, put the skull here and make this here. Mm -hmm. um, I gave him some pretty loose direction for that art. I feel like that makes it everything better. Like if you go in with too specific of an idea with an artist or like a tattoo artist or whatever, it's going to look too rigid and it won't look as good as what they can come up with. Yeah. And it's like, that's kind of been my approach to all of Black Raid, not just the art, but... Mm -hmm. um, I let myself, uh, I let a lot of things go that I wouldn't really, I, I think it's good not to care sometimes to make yourself not care. You can't be too overly invested in your art, even if it's your own, you know, 
and um like when i'm writing when i'm writing things like bass or we're working on drums like i'm a i'm a guitar lead guitarist at heart no -hmm. matter what like i've been playing guitar my whole life and the rest of this is kind of just like the the after note you know like these songs we're all written by a guitarist and they're i'm very guitar oriented but you know when i do stuff like bass or drums i've kind of fallen in or even vocals like i've kind of really fallen into that um that mindset where like i've I've made music for most of my life at this point and like yeah it can always be better but like a lot of times it can be worse too when you don't really see that yeah and i've been in the situation where you're fucking you're in the studio and you just work on the same eight second bar of a solo for six hours because you want to fucking get it perfect you know and it's um i didn't want that with black braid so there's and i kind of force myself to constantly draw that line and there's a lot of times like i want to spend another minute on drums or bass or something that i'm not totally comfortable with but my friends will tell me it's good and my producer will tell me it's good and i'll be like i should just fucking leave it like, I'm not a bassist, I'm not a drummer. And it's like, I should probably finish the parts of this song that matter to me instead of focusing on, like, these three seconds here. Um, and I've learned to not be a perfectionist and let a lot of things go. And I think the songs have, like, weirdly turned out better because of that. Well, and over time, you're going to see less and less of that happening, too. You're going to start being happy with the product that you come out with rather than trying to focus, like you said, on one specific part of the song. Yeah, and I've stopped myself a few times too. Like you can always listen to what you do and be like, go back and listen to a hundred lines of lyrics and be like, yeah, but this, these two lines could have been changed. And you know, like maybe ten years ago, I would have gone back and changed them, but mm-hmm. now I just don't, and I kind of let it lie and let let it be a little more organic. I don't put out anything mm-hmm. I'm uncomfortable with, but I try not to be a perfectionist either, and I think it. It kind of makes the music better. Like, you can't, you can't nitpick your own stuff that much. Like, it starts to kind of affect you in unknown ways after a while. I think. You know, Ben. It's kind of like reading the comments in a YouTube section, you know. Yeah, exactly. Like, it can be helpful, but I've been there, and I think I'm past the point where it's helpful, and I kind of got to teach myself to let it go a little bit more who are some of your favorite bands? And then also could you direct me to some other indigenous bands that you think deserve some extra love? Yeah. I mean, man, I don't really know what to tell you about my favorite bands. I listen to, <laughs> to fucking everything. Um, in a, it's, this is kind of weird. I don't know if other people do this, other black metal musicians, but I mean, black metal is like my bread and butter and it's the thing I listen to most. Yeah. But when I'm writing, I don't really listen to it. Um, cause I feel like I know it so well and there's all these other genres I really love and mm-hmm. like, I don't really need any more black metal inspiration. You know, I've listened to yeah, every fucking enough. black metal album under the sun. And, but like, sometimes I really enjoy just going to listen to like some, something completely out there. Like I really love to listen to like, I'll listen to like pop or country or something while I'm writing black metal. Mm-hmm. Um, or fucking, you know, neoclassical, like anything that's just on the opposite end of the spectrum. Um, it's 
it's really good to get a different perspective on things. Um, like a non-metal perspective. Like, it's not even like I'm going and listening to fucking Judas Priest or a different type of metal, you know, or like Mm -hmm. Motley Crue or something. Like, I just try to get out of the metal 100% sometimes when I'm writing black metal. And it's like, I've, I've got so much metal in my blood at all given times. Like, I don't really need that inspiration at this point. Like, I try to force myself outside of the box and listen to some shit that I never would listen to or equate with black metal and, like, see the value in it mm-hmm. maybe bring that in um but yeah that doesn't really answer your question at all i think uh that's <laughs> no, all good you've uh you've you've touched on a few bands that you really got into and so that's uh what i try to do with all my guests is just see like what their favorite um bands are just to kind of see uh i guess their approach on music and that does answer my question perfectly yeah. i mean like with modern black metal um i do like the u.s stuff a lot i think the u.s black metal bands are really kind of coming into their own finally we you know it took us a long time to really pose like to kind of really get a bona fide black metal scene going over here as opposed to the europeans who have been doing it forever mm-hmm. but like finally in the last couple of years i feel like we kind of really got it like just bands like wolves in the throne room and uada and lamp murmur and i mean i could just go on there's uh, there's a lot of really great u.s black metal bands around right now that uh weren't allowed weren't around 10 or 15 years ago mm-hmm. um but i mean as far as the other shit goes a when when it comes to black metal dissections always been a huge influence on me i really love rain chaos um but I, yeah it's it's really hard to pinpoint you know like it's not one there's no, there's no like favorite band of mine. I really love Finnish black metal, okay. stuff like Sargeist and uh, Sarkrista and things of that nature. You can kind of really hear them in my music. Um, but yeah, it's it's such an eclectic pool. It's really hard to say. Um, there's also a lot of classic bands, like classic U.S. bands, like Metallica and shit that influence me that you wouldn't really guess. Like you don't really hear Metallica in my music when you listen to it, but I did listen to Metallica for like nonstop for the first fucking 20 years of my life. So, I mean, it's definitely in there somewhere. <laughs> it's well, it's yeah, hard to say, you know, to it that much it's going to yeah. influence you somehow. Totally. Um, and what are some other, uh, um, indigenous black metal bands or just indigenous metal bands that, uh, that you think deserve some extra attention? Um, let me see. I don't know. There's so many of them too. Pan American native front. Is a giant one. I gotta obviously shout him out. He's awesome. Um, in our first show in October, our first East Coast show at St. Vitus is with them. Um, but Pan American in front, they're based out of Chicago. Really awesome black metal. Um, that same show, Maleficent is also playing in Ixoctalon. They're both native bands from uh, LA that are really okay. great. They're both black metal too. Um, Canada has a Farinock, who's probably my favorite indigenous Canadian artist. Um, a Farinock, he's solo as well. Really good black metal. I don't, his, his name's Finian. I've never met him or talked to him, but um, a lot of respect for that guy. He fucking pumps out EP after P, EP. He's been writing music for like a decade and he's got like 50,000 EPs. I don't know how he does it. He's just like constantly <laughs> releasing shit and splits and. And, and many albums 
Um, but his stuff's always cool. Uh, trying to think. Um, there's definitely m more that I'm not thinking of, and I feel horrible. Uh, is Atahi is Comanche metal? I'm good friends with that guy, and it's pretty sweet. That's like real raw traditional black metal. Um, Metzli is a small band from LA that's also pretty awesome. Um, it's all that really comes to mind right now, but I feel bad because I know there's, I know I got friends out there. They're gonna be like, dude, why didn't you fucking talk about me <laughs> when they hear this? <laughs> but. <laughs> But yeah, I it's think... hard being put on the spot and being like, these are my favorite bands or these are my favorite songs. Like, it's just, there's so many, especially if you're keeping up with like newer music. Yeah. It's hard, man. Yeah, it is. There's so much out there. But yeah, as far as indigenous metal goes, I've been listening to a lot of Afarinok, Pan American Native Front. Mm -hmm. um, Exoctalon's really good. But yeah, there's, there's, you know, there's an entire different scene down in Mexico too. Like, there's so many fucking indigenous bands on there right now, and I can't even. I'll admit I'm I'm kind of undereducated in it. Like I know a few of them, but like it's a huge scene, and I gotta I gotta get more into that, especially because we do want to start playing in Mexico next year too. It sounds like they all incorporate like different sounds and stuff too. Like you mentioned, like all the way from raw and black metal all the way across the spectrum. Yeah, yeah. There's a huge there's a huge spectrum of it. There's guys playing doom, and there's guys playing like classic heavy metal, and there's a lot of black metal out there. Death metal's huge. There's another one, um, Mutilated Tyrant, his Navajo death metal that's pretty mm. sweet. Um, I don't really get into death metal that much, um, so I can't tell you that many, but uh, there's there's definitely a big native death metal scene as well um, that I'm only really on the outskirts of. But. I just uh, actually saw my first fully native American band called uh, No More Moments, and they're from our Sik Sika reservation and they've been around for like 15 years. I think it's like a punk hardcore mix. Um, but yeah, they have their own, um, their own festival on the, on the reservation, which is really cool. And it was just awesome to see these guys get up there and fucking kill it on stage. Yeah. It's amazing. I saw a fucking mutilated tyrant. Um, the guys I was just talking about their Navajo death mm -hmm. metal and like revolver did a segment on them or something like a year or two ago. And they kind of, kind of blown up since then. Um, I'm pretty happy for them, but um, yeah, they just played this year. They played Gathering of Nations, which is like the biggest powwow in the world. I don't know if you're familiar mm. with that in New Mexico there, but I'm I, not familiar I, with it. But that sounds awesome. It's it, they usually I think it sells out every year, and they usually I think they sell fifty thousand tickets for it. It's like a huge. It's the biggest fucking powwow in the U.S. I think in the entire world. Like it's every tribe, and it's the biggest dancing competition in the in the continent. And they usually got 10,000 people entered in the dancing and like it's, it runs for four days. It's fucking massive. Um, and it's really, you know, it's traditional, it's fancy dance and grass dance and all that shit. Um, and it's, it's just a straight up powwow. It's not a festival, a music festival at all other than, you know, drums and native music. But um, I saw they put up a metal stage there this year and mutilated tyrant tyrant played uh, gathering of nations, which I wasn't at, but that, was really fucking cool to me to just to see them there you know it's like fucking throwing a metal band on i don't know it, it's just a, such a non-metal event and the fact that navajo metal is now like 
a major staple of it is it's it's really it's really fucking huge that they would kind of bridge that gap and maybe you will see more non-traditional bands there like it's it's all this you know throat singing and fancy dance and stuff and that stuff's amazing but the fact that they did open it up in Latin native metal band or two play last year and at an event that size you know it's it, it's just really awesome to me i'd like i love to see more of that i'm just looking at some of the pictures here from uh this year's gathering of nations it looks fucking it looks sweet yeah to see something like that it's never huge been, i should though i've never been either it's it's a big fucking deal here though i i definitely want to make it out there one day and now it's kind of in the back of my mind like hey if we start booking metal bands <laughs> maybe we could bring black braid there that'd be awesome yeah you guys have like there's a lot of stuff going on at that festival not even a festival i guess powwow yeah yeah it would, it would be yeah up here's like i told you there's such a small native population like i've been to powwows too but it's it's nothing like that you know that'd be like the back and open air of fucking yeah yeah pretty powwows. much it's like yeah it's about <laughs> the same size honestly it's 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 an insanely huge event so i love the traditional costumes i've always loved the like the color and just like the energy that the dancing takes but I yeah i understood it no it's a, it's a beautiful thing for sure um and again i'd like to you you see some of that in black raid now and then but mm -hmm. we want to be black metal too skagasawa i want to thank you again for hanging out with me today and um getting me into your busy schedule right before the release of your album i really appreciate it yeah no worries i'm happy to talk to you i'm pumped to pumped to get it out there before we shut things down um the last question i have for you is if people are looking for your music uh what is the best way for them to support you um well my website's always the best best way because no one else is involved in that and like when you buy shit on my website the sales will always 100 percent go to me um stuff like bandcamp is great like bandcamp has done so much for me and they're a great platform um but you do I, i've never talked bad about them because they've been so amazing and helpful but they do take a cut of my sales i'm happy for bandcamp sales but you will be helping me more directly if you buy shit off my website instead of off of bandcamp um okay. and that's blackbraid.us correct yeah awesome um we, yeah i got a few things in a few stores like i have some european distro uh with neuropa records and plastic head over there you can pre-order my stuff in europe uh with them instead of me but yeah if if you really want to support me the the best way to do it's buy through my website thank you so much again i appreciate this yeah yeah i had a fun i had fun it was awesome so thank you thank you for tuning in and we will see you next time on gyro nation metal please don't forget to like share and subscribe the podcast can be found on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you would like to support this podcast, please consider checking out my Patreon. Thank you.